This is The Coffin Affair, A Miscarriage of Justice Revisited, Episode 4, Trial, and I'm Catherine Campbell. After three American hunters were murdered in the Gaspé Woods in the summer of 1953, one man became the focus of the investigation, Wilbert Coffin, a local prospector. In our last episode, we learned that the politics of 1950s Quebec might have had a lot to do with it. We saw how Quebec's premier at that time, Maurice Duplessis, who some have described as a dictator, prejudiced the investigation due to his concerns about the impact the unsolved murders of three Americans would have on tourism. Duplessis' influence was such that Wilbert Coffin was quickly arrested for the murder and given who was representing him in court, didn't really stand much of a chance at a fair trial. In this episode, we'll look at the trial and the evidence presented in court. It'll become clear that by presenting no evidence at trial, in effect no defense, Wilbert's lawyer did him a great disservice that ultimately led to his hanging. After being postponed for almost a year, on July 12, 1954, in the Perisay courtroom, Wilbert Coffin was formally charged in the following manner. Between the first day of June 1953 and the 23rd of July 1953, in the townships of Holland and Castonguay, said district of Gaspé, Wilbert alias Bill Coffin, residing at York Centre, said district criminally and without justification and legitimate excuse, did deliberately and knowingly kill and assassinate Richard Lindsay from Hollidaysburg, Blair County, Pennsylvania, USA. The said Wilbert, alias Bill Coffin, thus committed murder. Wilbert pled not guilty. The trial began on July 12, 1954, and ended on August 5, 1954. Present in the courtroom were the judge, defense, and prosecution teams, 12-person jury, and members of the public, including members of the victim's families and members of Wilbert's family. Eugene Lindsay's wife was there, his daughter Donna. Frederick Clark's father, Clarence, was there, his wife Pearl, his daughter Clara, and her husband, Sylvester Bender. Wilbert's sister, Rhoda, was there every day, and his mother and father were often present as well. Now, in terms of the prosecution, if we look at the prosecution team, almost everyone was affiliated with Duplessis or his party, the Union Nationale. The prosecutor at the preliminary inquiry was George Blanchard, a deputy attorney general and a key Union National figure on the Gaspé Peninsula. The trial prosecutors were Noël Dorian, chief prosecutor for Quebec, assistant attorney general and close political friend of Duplessis, and Paul Michelon, associate crown counsel. Even the presiding judge, former prosecutor Gérard Lacroix, was a close political friend of Maurice Duplessis. On the defense side, Raymond Mahar acted as Wilbert's defense attorney with the help of Louis Doiron and Francois de Billy Gravel. Now remember, Raymond Mahar was very inexperienced, but his father was a close political friend of Maurice Duplessis, which could explain why Wilbert's family was pressured into hiring him. In choosing a jury and before presenting their case, the defense proposed that the jury must be English, as the accused was English, and knew no to very little French. Otherwise, this could be considered a violation of Wilbert's rights. 
However, finding English-speaking jurors would prove to be difficult given that only 12 to 15 percent of the population around Perse was English-speaking. The sheriff, Joseph Meir, testified that there were not enough English speakers within a 40-mile radius who qualify for jury duty. The judge thus determined it'd be fair to have six English and six French-speaking jurors, which took four days to compile. Some other challenges to both the Crown and the defense were based on beliefs about the death penalty, ability to speak or understand English adequately, and sufficient distance from the case itself. Ultimately, the jury was comprised of 12 men, as women were only permitted to sit on juries in Quebec as of 1971. In Canadian courts, it's the job of the Crown attorney to prove that a defendant has committed a crime. Further, for a first-degree murder conviction, the Crown also has to prove that the killing was planned and deliberate. But it's not really the role of the Crown to win its case or seek a guilty verdict necessarily, but the idea is that the Crown is trying to achieve justice, whatever that outcome might be. Unfortunately for Wilbert, many accounts of the Crown conduct during his trial indicated that their remarks were often inflammatory, relentless, downright dishonest, and anything but moderate or impartial. Now, the Crown's case against Wilbert Coffin was simple. He'd been seen in the gas bay with one of the murder victims, Richard Lindsay, prior to him going missing, was the last known person to have seen the hunting party alive. The prosecutor theorized that Wilbert had inadvertently discovered Eugene Lindsay was carrying a large sum of money and he'd murdered the three Americans to steal the money. In the year prior to the trial, police and prosecutors scoured bars, gas stations, and coffee shops from Gaspé to Montreal looking for witnesses who saw Wilbert spend the money they alleged that he'd stolen. The prosecutor called 88 witnesses to testify at trial. They included garage men, grocers, bartenders, hotel keepers, people who saw Wilbert on the road from Gaspé to Montreal, mining men, medical experts, ballistic experts, and family members. Witnesses described the findings in the bush, the movement of Wilbert Coffin following his meeting with the Lindsay party, the identification of goods, the police evidence, evidence from the initial searches, and from people who had any dealings with Wilbert shortly before and after he left the gas bay. So the Crown's theory was that he had stolen Frederick Clark's valise, which was found at Wilbert's home in Montreal. He single-handedly distributed the bodies, the bedroll, and other properties across an area of seven miles around the campsite and had gone on a drunken spending spree between gas bay and Montreal. But given that all of the evidence was circumstantial and the murder weapon never found, the lawyers for the prosecution persuasively planted the perception that Wilbert had borrowed a gun. They also produced a witness, Wilson McGregor, who stated he saw what looked like the barrel of a rifle sticking out of Wilbert's truck, though he later recanted that testimony. Since the Crown couldn't produce a murder weapon or any direct evidence, they focus on a number of issues in an attempt to establish Wilbert's guilt. The first and the easiest was the theft of objects. So in making their case against him, a damning piece of evidence the Crown had was that Japanese-made pocket knife that they'd found amongst his effects. We spoke about it in episode one as it was identified as a war memento 
given to Richard Lindsay by a relative who fought in the Pacific during World War II. Wilbert always maintained that a knife had been a gift, even after admitting to stealing other items. The other damning items in his possession belonging to the hunters was a valise, a fuel pump, and binoculars. Given that Wilbert admitted to later stealing those items, the court did not believe he had not, in fact, stolen the pocket knife. The theft of money was also crown evidence against Wilbert Coffin, as the crown alleged that Eugene Lindsay had $650 in his wallet, and the prosecution contended that Wilbert had stolen it and spent it before and during his trip to Montreal. Many witnesses testified at trial about the money that Wilbert spent along the route from the gas bay to Montreal, and reading the trial transcripts, you can see how a jury might believe that Wilbert was spending more money than the average prospector. But when you break down their testimony, in fact, the most Wilbert ever spent in one place was $10. Mostly it was $4 or $5, and sometimes as little as $2. The Crown was able to establish his spending for the trip totaled approximately $75, far less than the 650 that he was accused of stealing. Alton Price demonstrates in his book about the case that the witnesses were not called in a chronological order, and some may have actually been led in their testimony by the prosecutor Michelon and also Judge Lacroix in a manner to support the theory that Wilbert had a large sum of money on him and that robbery had been the motive for the murders. At one point, Crown Prosecutor Michelon forcefully stated to the jury, if you have the thief, you have the murderer. The gun was another piece of evidence discussed by the Crown. Wilbert had a previous conviction for poaching, so the police had seized his own gun. The Crown, therefore, alleged that he borrowed a gun to commit the murders, then instructed his lawyers to dispose of it. But nothing could be further from the truth. Recall that in episode two, Wilbert had borrowed a rifle from his friend Jack Eagle and had left it at his camp in the bush. He told his brother Donald and Sergeant Henri Doyon, who he trusted, of its location. Dion later went to Captain Matt and told him where the gun was located, but by the time the investigators got to the cabin, it was gone. What we do know about what happened to the gun comes from a confession by Jean-Guy Hamel, who was Raymond Mahar's assistant, so Wilbert's lawyer's assistant. He told his story to the police when being questioned shortly before Wilbert's trial. By some means, Mahar found out about the location of the rifle, and on the evening prior to the coroner's inquest, Mahar and Hamel went into the woods by circumventing the gate to retrieve the rifle. It was then dismantled and thrown off the Quebec City Bridge, and while it's not never been substantiated, it's likely that Mahar threw the rifle parts off the bridge himself. At Wilbert Coffin's trial during a voir dire, which in Canadian law is a trial within a trial out of earshot of the jury, where a judge rules on the admissibility of evidence, Hamel lied on the stand about what happened to the rifle and about what he told police. He denied everything. Ultimately, Judge Lacroix decided that Hamel's testimony at trial was inadmissible and could not be submitted to the jury. Immediately after Lacroix's ruling, Hamel was arrested and charged with perjury. He was convicted and received a five-year sentence. Parts of the rifle were eventually found by bridge workers building piers in the river and identified by a gunsmith from the Gaspé Coast as belonging to Jack Eagle's 3240 Marlin rifle. Now, this raises some questions as to not only 
Mahar's criminal actions and incompetence as a lawyer in stealing and destroying material evidence in a criminal case, but what could his possible motive have been? Perhaps he had so little faith in Wilbert's innocence and wanted to destroy any damning evidence? In retrospect, however, it turns out that the murder weapon was likely not a rifle at all, but may have in fact been a 38 Special, a revolver. If it had been used to kill the American hunters, it would have made the same size hole without the power to cause an exit wound. Furthermore, Louis Doiron, who had unofficially assisted Mahar at Wilbert's trial years later, revealed that all parties concerned were aware that Mahar had stolen the rifle. Normally, such actions would have resulted in disbarment, yet he was allowed to continue as chief defense counsel. It also begs the question as to why Hamill committed perjury in the first place. Was it to protect Mahar at the murder trial? Alton Price, in his book, believes that he may have felt loyalty to Mahar or perhaps had been promised money. Other witnesses called to testify at the trial included Sergeant Henri Dion, and he testified that he and Constable Sinnott took Wilbert in the woods on July 21, 1953, where Wilbert showed Dion the remnants of the campfire and explained his actions in meeting the Americans, helping them get their truck fixed. He also described the yellow jeep he later saw at the campsite. Dion testified to the fact that between Camp 24 and 26, there was evidence of a vehicle with smooth tires and light cross chains that had gone back and forth between the two camps more than once. Two other searchers gave the same testimony about vehicle tracks. Dr. Jean-Marie Roussel, the provincial pathologist, gave evidence that the holes in the boys' clothes had been made by either a 30-30, a 30-06, or a 38 handgun, although he couldn't be sure. William or Bill Baker took the stand and testified that he had known Wilbert for at least a dozen years and had loaned him his truck to go prospecting. Around about June 8, 1953, he saw Wilbert after that at the inn he owned, the One Ash Inn, on June 12th. Wilbert told Baker that he hadn't brought fellow prospector Angus McDonald into the woods with him as planned as he decided he worked best on his own. Baker also stated he was unaware that Wilbert had taken the truck to Montreal and only found out when there was a collision and the truck was taken to a garage. Some of the most incriminating evidence at trial came from Wilson McGregor in September of 53. He told the police that he'd seen a muzzle of a rifle or a rifle barrel in the back of Wilbert's truck, or rather the truck that he had borrowed from his friend William Baker when Wilbert and Murray Patterson, which is McGregor's father-in-law, were in the rear of Patterson's property on June 12, 1953. Mrs. Eugene Lindsay also testified on the fourth day of the trial and identified her son and husband's belongings, including the stove, kerosene container, a watch, ring, belt, cap, pocket knife, and some clothing. She testified to the fact that the last she had heard from Richard Lindsay had been a postcard sent from the village of the Gaspé dated June 8, 53, and read in part, Hi, Mama, we're ready to go into the woods tomorrow. After the prosecution presented its case, it was the defense's turn. Many Gaspésians believe that Wilbert's defense attorney, Maître Mahar, was not only incompetent, but an alcoholic as well. 
He absented himself for two days in the middle of the trial, and when he returned, he informed the press that he'd been interviewing witnesses and found 85 previously unknown witnesses. In fact, Eustache Sirwar, Captain Sirwar's brother, who was also a provincial police officer in the Gaspé, observed Mahar drinking heavily at the Hotel Annette in New Carlisle during that time, interviewing nobody. Cynthia Patterson told us. Someone who was working in Persay during the trial. And um, he said of, of Bill Coffin's lawyer, because he was working in a hotel, this young man, he said that lawyer and the, whoever was with him, they just drank and drank and drank because this guy's job was, you know, like he was a student worker, so he'd be taking like the bottles every day. I heard he was drunk at the trial. Yeah. And, that, and this man said, he said, I have no trouble believing that because I took away the bottles. And he was just boozed up the whole time. Why was he boozed up? The day following the Crown's conclusion of their case, when it came time for the defense to present their side and establish that Wilbert Coffin could not have committed this murder, Maitre Mahar rose from his seat and stated, My Lord, the defense rests. This decision stupefied the court and seemed not only incredible but absurd, shocking everyone in the courtroom. Now, there are instances where defense counsel in criminal trials may be so confident in their client's case that they present no defense. In so doing, they are in effect conveying the belief that the Crown's case is so weak that an acquittal is a foregone conclusion. By presenting no defense, it's impossible to know what Major Mahar was thinking. Was it strategic? Was it tactical? Was it incompetence on his part? We'll never know. But if he had presented a defense, there were a number of obvious lines of inquiry he could have pursued. The evidence the defense could have raised includes the following. Number one, tire marks. Recall that there were trees at the crime scene that had shaded an area containing tire marks from the weather, so they were relatively well-preserved. And they were found to be different from those of the Pennsylvania truck owned by the hunting party and different from those of the vehicle Wilbert had been driving as well. And at trial, when Sergeant Dion took the stand, he didn't mention any tire marks from the Jeep, which he had seen at the crime scene. And the reason he didn't was that neither the Crown nor the defense ever asked the question. Number two, the gun. Now, that's a contentious issue, and we've already established that Wilbert didn't possess a gun. His gun had been seized by the police following his conviction for poaching. The gun evidence presented at trial should have been vigorously contested by Mahar. Dr. Jean-Marie Roussel, the provincial medical legal authority, admitted the hole could have been made by a pellet traveling from either the back or the front. He also testified that it was impossible to say with certainly the gauge of the rifle as the casing was never recovered. So at best, that evidence was inconclusive and Think about it, how could a man with a rifle have shot and killed two experienced hunters and overpowered a third? Number three, evidence of two murderers. There was evidence to suggest two people exited the camp area where the bodies were found. Clothing and equipment were found strewn on both sides of the road, likely thrown by two people in a vehicle. And Wilbert had described two unknown Americans at the camp supporting the evidence of two killers, and this should have been pursued. Number four, Wilbert's actions on return to the Gaspé. 
While the Crown maintained that Wilbert had disappeared on June 12th, he actually returned voluntarily in the midst of a manhunt that was exploding into headlines across the entire continent. Those don't seem to be the actions of a guilty person. And he never attempted to deny meeting the Lindsays nor hide any of the articles from them, whether stolen or gifted to him. Number five, the yellow Jeep. Now, this was a significant piece of evidence that should definitely have been pursued, and there was no attempt to present any other suspect evidence, in particular following up on Wilbert's statement that these two other Americans were at the campsite, as well as the Jeep with the yellow paneled plywood body. Now, that's a very specific description, and that could have been pursued by questioning other witnesses, townspeople in Pennsylvania, people in the gas bay, we now know that many other people saw that same Jeep in and around the Gaspé area and only later revealed this to the authorities as they were unaware of its significance. Number six, robbery motive. If the alleged motive for the murder was robbery, as the prosecution believed, why would Wilbert not have robbed other objects? It was later reported that three expensive rifles belonging to the victims were found near them and a fourth rifle was later found in the truck. If Wilbert's motive was robbery, surely he would have robbed everything of value and not just the money, which was alleged. Number seven, whiskey bottle. At the remains of Camp 24, the police found three empty bottles. One was a 10-ounce bottle that had contained American rye whiskey, and the other two brown bottles had no labels. While Eugene Lindsay was known to drink rye whiskey, the other two bottles remain a mystery. It's been suggested that they may have been from an earlier trip or possibly illegal liquor obtained en route to the Gaspé or similar to the kind of liquor brought over from St. Pierre and Miquelon. Alton Price, in his book, believes that the bottles were connected to the two mysterious Americans in the yellow panel Jeep, as a number of witnesses confirm this. One woodworker who saw the Jeep also remembered a case of liquor in the back. Another recalls Americans, and not Lindsay, buying a case of scotch at the Baker Hotel in 1953. This line of inquiry should have been pursued by the defense at trial. Finally, number eight, Eugene Lindsay's reputation is another area that should have been pursued further. As we discussed in an earlier episode, Eugene Lindsay had a reputation for rather nefarious dealings. He made payday loans, he had a check cashing ring, he ran numbers, etc. And such actions are inevitably going to create bad feelings amongst some people. So Eugene may have had enemies in Pennsylvania, and there are rumors that he'd been involved in gambling, liquor smuggling, and extramarital affairs in the Gas Bay, as well as he'd visited on a number of other occasions. In fact, Michael Rooney talks to us about the alleged Pittsburgh letter. Wilbur Coffin received a letter at Quebec. He never got the letter. Someone sent it to him for some reason instead of his attorney, saying that whoever this person was who sent the letter was an anonymous letter. Sent Wilbur Coffin a letter saying that at a tavern in Pittsburgh, they overheard people bragging that they had killed Eugene Lindsay and stolen his money. And this letter was taken directly to Marty Stephen instead of going to the coffin, of course. I don't know why this person didn't send it to Frostwater Val, but they didn't. So, I mean, that opens up a whole new possibility of a connection to Pittsburgh. 
Establishing that others, friends and enemies from Pennsylvania or elsewhere, may have held a grudge against Eugene Lindsay could have raised doubt about Wilbur Coffin's involvement in the murders. One of the biggest problems with how the defense was handled, besides the fact there was no defense presented at all, was that Wilbur Coffin was not permitted by Maitre Mahar to testify on his own behalf. Now, an accused person has the right to remain silent. They categorically do not have to give evidence at trial. But Wilbur himself wanted to testify. It was a great strain to be denied the chance to tell his side of the story. According to John Beliveau's book, Wilbert's lawyers had argued over whether or not he should be allowed to testify. Ravel believed he should have been allowed in order to prove his innocence, whereas Mahar, as chief counsel, maintained that an accused man ought not to take the stand. Moreover, Wilbert Coffin's failure to take the stand in his own defense was seen as an admission of guilt by some. And wouldn't an innocent man testify to save his life? Surely, if he'd been given the opportunity, he would have spoken about the Jeep, he would have described the two Americans, and he could have possibly raised reasonable doubt as to his involvement in the crime. In fact, many jury members did take his silence as an admission of guilt. Following the trial and hanging, Jacques Hébert was able to interview Romuald Cahon, a juryman, and he stated that, For several days, we have heard the Crown prosecutors and the Crown witnesses strive to persuade us of Coffin's guilt, but we were expecting to hear the defense lawyers and witnesses, especially Coffin himself. When Mahar stood up to tell us that he had no defense to offer, we decided that Coffin was guilty. A man who does not defend himself must be guilty. Roger Rail, another juryman, justified the jury's decision based on the prosecutors having told them what a bad man Wilbert was and on the fact that he didn't testify on his own behalf. So it was clear that the prosecution and police were looking for a smoking gun or confession, and they sought that during the investigation, although unsuccessfully through jailhouse informants. The use of jailhouse or in-custody informants in criminal investigations and trials has a long history in a substantial number of wrongful conviction cases in Canada and the U.S. Often these individuals who are incarcerated themselves bring information to authorities regarding confessions or other information pertinent to an investigation or a trial. But in exchange, the informers receive some sort of benefit for their cooperation, which could take the form of leniency in their own case with respect to sentence, monetary reward, dismissal of charges, or some other favor. Clearly, incarcerated individuals in the position to provide evidence to authorities stand to gain a great deal, and the incentives to provide information, regardless of its factual nature, are compelling. But the inherent unreliability is in part due to the fact that such individuals will often fabricate evidence due to these various incentives. So in Coffin's case, the police sought out a man named Rael Marlowe and held for trial on a charge of armed robbery as he'd shared a jail cell with Wilbert and four others in Quebec City before the trial. Marlowe and others were questioned by the Crown in the search for testimony against Wilbert. Marlowe had claimed, according to the provincial police, that Wilbert had made certain admissions to him about the murder of young Richard Lindsay and hoped to exchange that testimony for leniency in sentencing on his own charge. Francois Gravel, 
One of Wilbert's lawyers found this claim to be false, and while Marlowe was brought to Perse during the trial, he didn't testify. The police also tried to get a man named Morin to testify at trial to hearing the same admission, but he didn't speak any English, and nor did Wilbert speak French. So despite the fact he was also brought to Perse for the trial, Morin himself refused to testify against Wilbert. In both cases, the police were unsuccessful in forcing these two individuals to essentially commit perjury. The trials remembered amongst the community of Gaspé to this day as being tragically unfair. Albert Patterson, the fishing guy, told us, that the, the trial was just a farce. It was a farce. I mean, he was guilty. He was guilty when the first night that they, they had the the, uh, the inquest there, he was guilty from that point on as far as the government was concerned. I don't think you'll find anyone around here says he had a fair trial. No. You may find people around here say, well, he might have done it or things like that. But, but, but to say he had a fair trial, I don't think there's anyone that would say he had a fair trial. Cynthia Patterson, minister and historian, agrees. I think he did not have a fair trial. And I think there's a large reasonable doubt that he did it. And the third part of proving his innocence by proving someone else did it, we've never been able to do no. it definitively. Now, as we mentioned earlier, many of the people we interviewed also pointed out the problem of language at trial. As we stated earlier, the judge decided on a jury where half were to be English-speaking and the other half French-speaking. This proved very difficult to ascertain as the surnames of individuals didn't necessarily match their language comprehension. For example, a person named Smith in the Gaspé could be unilingually French and a person named Drolet could be unilingually English. Wilbur himself had only a very rudimentary understanding of the French language at best. He was a unilingual Anglophone and would have struggled to understand a trial in French where technical legal terms were raised and discussed, and essentially this would have put him at a significant disadvantage. Moreover, others attending the trial, Wilbert's family members, were Anglophone and were also at a disadvantage in a French trial. Wilbert's niece Judy intimated that this may have been a form of prejudice towards English speakers in the Gaspé at that time. It's because the... um prosecutor and all of the ones involved in it, they were all French. The trial was in French. Right. They were all French. So it was very easy for them to point the finger at somebody English and say they did it. Um, It was a minority. Uh, So it was prejudice in the way. Oh, definitely. Okay. Why would you have unilingual French and unilingual English and a couple of bilingual? It doesn't make sense. No. And if, if the trial is all in French, why would you have anybody in the jury that speaks only English? Uh, you know, it's not going to do you any good. No. And how how's uh, Mr. Coffin's French? Did he speak French? A few words. Okay. Uh, I think I think he was able to get by to make himself understood, sort yeah. of thing, but nothing not to carry on a conversation. Now, the closing address to the jury, well, there were in fact four closing addresses given to the jury. Prosecutor Dorians was in French. Defense lawyer Douarons was also in French. Neither were translated. The pleadings in English by Prosecutor Michelon and defense lawyer Mahar were also not translated. 
In Michelon's address to the jury, he made several loose and unfounded statements about evidence. He fabricated imaginary discussions between Wilbert Coffin and the Lindsays, and he used hearsay evidence in an attempt to sway the jury. He suggested that the victim's rifles had been fired and reloaded, despite expert evidence to the contrary. He hinted that Wilbert had 600 or more in U.S. dollars on him, despite the fact that witnesses established he'd only spent 75 American dollars. He pointed out again and again to the jury that the sole motive for the murder was robbery, that all missing objects could be traced to Wilbert, not based on established facts. He was asking the jury to believe Wilbert killed all three Americans when in fact he was only on trial for killing Richard Lindsay. Noel Dorion pleaded next in French and emphasized the past case law had demonstrated that a conviction could happen based on circumstantial evidence. Much of the arguments Dorion presented, however, were not supported by testimony at trial and were mere speculation. As Alton Price said, he took liberties. Indeed, he also went over the Jeep evidence, made false statements, stated that Donald Coffin had stolen the the rifle, and Wilbert Coffin had stolen the pocket knife, both assertions not established by evidence. He asked rhetorical questions and made presumptive statements. In fact, he made points that actually contradicted his colleague Michelin's address to the jury. In his final arguments, Dorian said, And I will close with this last word, which was also one of the last ones in evidence, the very word that he himself pronounced before the police officers as he was addressing his father. They are not man enough to break me. Gentlemen, is that the language of an innocent? Is that the language of a person who does not flee from the law? Is that the language of a conscience that is really at peace? I put the question to you, and I believe that those last words are pregnant with meaning. He does not cry out, I am innocent, Father. No, don't worry. They are not man enough to break me. In other words, no, they will never know the truth. I buried the truth along with my crime in the deep woods where I killed those three Americans. The truth will never come out, and if the truth does not come out, justice will remain silent. Wilbert's simple sentence to his father was twisted to be an admission of guilt. Dorion closed by exhorting the jury to give an example to their region, their province, their country, and to America. The closing arguments for the defense were given by Maitre Mahar in English and Maitre Doiron in French. Mahar underlined that the prosecution had failed to do their job because there was in fact no evidence proving Wilbert committed murder and that the Crown had not proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. He was a little unclear on the concept of recent possession and circumstantial evidence. However, he addressed a number of the other points raised by the prosecution and ended by stating, And we know that you as judges will have the courage to render the only verdict that can be rendered, and that verdict, gentlemen, is not guilty. Louis Doiron's closing address in French addressed a number of other specific issues, including the small amount of money that Wilbert had spent on his trip, and raised the question as to what happened to the five or six hundred American dollars that Eugene Lindsay allegedly had. He addressed the forensic evidence about time of death and underlined that the accused should be judged the same as if the victims had been humble Canadian citizens. He also underlined Wilbert's war service. Judge Lacroix made the last address to the jury in both languages. He explained to the jury the concept of reasonable doubt and summarized both the prosecution's case and the points the defense had made. 
but according to Alton Price, his address demonstrated he could not refrain from conveying that he believed Wilbur Coffin was guilty. Lacroix explained the difference between murder and manslaughter and its relation to alcohol consumption. However, he seemed preoccupied with not reducing the charge to manslaughter based on that. Following Lacroix's summary, the jury was left to make its deliberations. The judge had addressed the jury until 4.30. A verdict of guilty of murder was rendered at 5. At the end of the 15-day trial, the jury took only 34 minutes to find Wilbur Coffin guilty of first-degree murder. After the verdict was read aloud, Wilbert was asked if he had anything to say before sentence. He did not respond. Today, the penalty for murder in Canada is life imprisonment. However, in 1953, the penalty for a first-degree murder conviction was death by hanging. On August 5, 1954, at sentencing, the judge placed a black tricorn hat on his head and read a statement that Wilbert Coffin was guilty and would be executed on the 26th of November, 1954, to be hanged by the neck until he was dead. Following the verdict, Louis Doiron, the defense counsel, came up to jury member Roger Rail, shook his hand and said, congratulations, you've just convicted an innocent man. According to Jacques Hébert, other lawyers who attended Wilbert's trial as spectators felt that the blunders, stupidity, incompetence, and unbelievable inefficiency of Mahar largely contributed to Wilbert's conviction. Speaking in 2006, prominent Canadian criminal lawyer Edward Greenspan blamed Wilbert's trial lawyer, Mahar, for keeping him out of the witness box. It was incompetence with a capital I, Greenspan said of Mahar. It's the worst case of lawyering I've ever seen. His description of Mahar's defense was that it was reckless and negligent in the extreme. Now, while we've established that a number of factors may have led to Wilbert Coffin's conviction at trial, including ineffective assistance of counsel, prosecutorial and police misconduct, Wilbert's story was not over yet. He had a right to appeal the conviction and sentence, which we'll discuss in the next episode. Was there ever really a chance, though, for clear heads to prevail at this juncture that a higher court would be able to establish that an error in law had occurred? Or would an innocent man be sent to the gallows for a murder he could not possibly have committed? A number of sources were used for this podcast and a number of people interviewed. While far too long to list here, all of that information is available on the website at www.wilbertcoffinaffair.com.